0: Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome into Garden Views. This week we are talking to Robert Grunstein. Uh, Robert is a, a story that not similar but it's in the same vein as the guest we talked to about two to three months ago tony uh oliva i believe it's oliva right is that his last name viola Viola. oh my god thank you for that i i, I knew it, i knew something wasn't right but i had uh to... anyway uh this is a, a story of basically prosecutorial misconduct which ended up in the, the another arm of justice coming in and uh, dispensing justice onto the prosecutors but not helping the individual at all who had been the victim of um these wrongs and it's sort of a strange story much like tony's was um and so i think we'll just start at the beginning and first we'll greet robert and say robert thank you for coming on garden views and just tell the folks a little bit about yourself well thank
1: you for the audience it's important to have an opportunity to tell my story yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, just to preface uh, in response to what you said, uh, as far as Tony Biola's and my happenstance being unusual, they really aren't. The sort of prosecutorial misconduct that occurred in both our cases is quite common, and but it's just hidden because people are afraid to say anything. You know, it's ex- expensive to get an attorney. In my case, I was able to um, participate in my own legal defense. It's also frightening because you learn quickly
0: that if you fight them, you get put in prison. Mm. Now, your story began with uh, really just a a couple of civil cases where you were having um, civil issues. One, you were helping a relative with, and, and one was between yourself in a a homeowners association or condo association. And, and somehow as a result of that, you almost got banned from, from the local courts. Um, And we should probably give that a little bit of a background as well, because this, this whole thing started with you trying to deal with, with things in civil court.
1: Right. There are actually two parallel histories. Um, just in terms of, uh, you know, temporal history. The first case was a civil case. Uh, I was a member of the Washington State Bar at the time, but I had to go back to Ohio to help my parents who were becoming in advanced age. They really just had to have someone with them all the time. We tried having home care help, but it just wasn't working. My father had, uh, who was a professor at Case Western Reserve, really a distinguished intellect a professor of public policy and uh, law. Uh, Also was having very serious health emergencies. They were acute, but they were serious and the recovery periods um, needed someone there all the time. So I moved back to Ohio to be really take care of my parents who were in their uh, middle eighties. And I'm glad to say, um, due to my presence, My father was able to die whole, He had these acute uh, health emergencies, but because I was there, we were able to treat him, get him to the hospital the same day. And It was really one of the best things I've ever done, instead of putting my humans on the uh, sanitary waste heap of uh, elder adults. So the first case uh, was a civil case after my dad uh, died. My mother consigned some of her collectibles to a fine arts auctioneer in Cleveland, Ohio. I don't know why she did that. She didn't need the money, but she did it. And uh, my sisters negotiated a contract with Wolf's Gallery it was a fine arts auctioneer in Cleveland. Well, Wolf's took some of my uh, some of the collectibles, sold them, realized $30,000 $30, from the sale and gave my mother nothing so I had to uh remain in Ohio and help my mom get her money back It just you know, she could have taken the loss but you have to be just out of loyalty and the idea that someone was treating a newly created widow like this was intolerable Sure. so I had the proceeds of the uh, right to the proceeds assigned to me so I could sue in my own name and sued the first and filed the first case I ever filed in Ohio ever first case and it was dismissed on a procedural basis I appealed and won the appeal and remanded to a judge named Lillian Green so once it's remanded the case starts new so we're doing motion practice and it was a, a very good case, really. Not only was it, you know, on behalf of my mom, who was a very benevolent person, but it was also litigating limited liability corporations which were quite new at the time. There was, it just, it just wasn't that much law on. So it was very healthy for the legal system. And what I was trying to do is called piercing the corporate veil to get personal liability against the uh, Michael Wolf, who was the principal of Wolf's Gallery Inc. Um, so we you're doing, you know, you file your briefs, um, and things are going quite pleasantly. Uh, there were no Rule 11 motions, which your motions for, uh, frivolous filings or things that are not correct in law in fact, there was no contempt, there were no warnings, there were no violations, you know, of other technical violations, um, you know, you to on the case for a second time after you know, you've lost nothing, really. And but Billion Green, the judge, just didn't want the case. So opposing counsel out of the blue made a motion to have me declared vexatious under Ohio's vexatious litigator statute. I didn't even take it seriously. Because under the statute, you can't do it by motion. I had done nothing wrong. It's for serial filers, people who file the same suit or same motion over and over right. and over and over and i've done none of that It's a very responsible case i'm a good writer and my uh, research is, is very good
0: even if it so, wasn't you're, you're correct so uh, vexatious means that you've abused the system over, like you said over and over and over again so even if this one case was hideously flawed which which it wasn't you won on one appeal at least it's still one case um you know so but you know definitionally vexatious which I'm not even sure all states have such a statute. Um, I, I know mine does not, um, but I can figure out what it is. But whatever it is, it's extreme. It, it's not for, you know, one case that goes bad or south. It, it Like you said, it's for basically a course of conduct.
1: Right. Also, the Ninth Appellate District in Ohio even declared the statute unconstitutional mm-hmm. because the term vexatious has no meaning. Right. And it makes no reference to objective criteria like violations of civil rule 12, or it doesn't make any reference to objective criteria. So to me, this was laughable. I said, this is not professional. This is, this is not even, this is not even pre-intelligent. <laughs> so he makes them, and plus under the statute, you're not allowed to do it by motion. It has to be a new action, yeah, a new yeah. complaint, filing service, and a new, a new trial. So to me, I, this is just laughable. I, I just, this guy was desperate. So anyway, the judge grants the motion. I couldn't believe it. I said, What have I walked into? I mean, I've never heard bad things about Cleveland, but this. So, uh, she grants the motion. I am hereby declared vexatious in Ohio. And when you're vexatious in Ohio, you can't file in any court. You can't file in the lowest municipal court, court of common pleas, appellate court the Supreme Court, in any county in the entire state, in any 86 of the counties, one court determines jurisdiction for the whole entire state, and you can't appeal unless you're given leave to proceed, so it's a, it's an excellent vehicle for silencing people they don't like. I think Lillian Green just couldn't keep up with the docket, she just wanted to get rid of someone. Who wasn't didn't represent advancement? I wasn't one of the big law firms. I didn't represent loss. I was uh, too small to protect, too easy to uh, remove. So anyway, I filed my appeal in a tiny manner, and uh, the appellate court didn't say anything. They didn't say, well, you have to ask for leave to appeal. I paid my fee, sent in my brief. They sent the read back, if they wanted it re into double space, which I did. And this was all in 2005. In October of 2005, uh, I get asked to come into Ohio in October uh, of March of 2006 for oral argument, which is a normal part of appeal. So in March of 2006, I drive into Ohio and. Uh, go to the 8th district, uh, it, uh, 8th appellate district. And I remember the bank of judges. I remember them very clearly, because it was a very unusual bank of judges. They had a pro tem judge, a guy named Corrigan, the Corkin family runs Cleveland. And they had a, a pro tem judge, you know, uh, sitting as the uh, lead, which is very unusual. And I recognized the other judges. One judge was suggested Judge Karpinski, Diane Karpinski, was very bright. I think she once offered me a job. I said, well, "What's going on here?" What does "pro tem so, mean? Walk up to you know, "pro tem means temporary. Okay. That's you know a special assignment on a sort of an ad hoc, one time basis.
0: Right. So they're not usually sitting there. They're uh, they're assigned. Yeah, probably a retired judge or something like that.
1: Right for special purpose. Well, this guy was not retired. He was quite active, but it was just. It's sort of like for one time purpose. Mm -hmm. What do they need a one timer for? This is a very routine case. So I walk up to the podium with my grief and I'm ready to start talking. They say, Mr. Runstein, your appeal has been canceled. I say, what do you mean? You can't cancel my appeal. You took my grief. I paid my money. I filed timely. You had me drive in from Vermont where I moved after my dad died. My my mother moved to Seattle after Uh, that. You can't do this sorry you don't have lead to appeal appeal is denied you are vexatious for the rest of your life that's another thing about the ohio vexatious litigator statute you're vexatious forever which is unusual because one is not necessary if you look at the federal cases uh there's a leading case um both Kraft, crummer versus craft foods and uh that federal case says what you can only apply re- filing restrictions with respect to one party, with respect to one cause of action, in one case, in order to stop something that shouldn't be happening right now. It's a good application. So, uh, that's it. So once you're vexatious, you're completely exposed. You're also, um, have a stigma of being vexatious as that, you know, you're incompetent. You're, um, irresponsible, and the judges just talk to each other. They, uh, you know, know that this is a, this is a, you know, this is a, this is a person we need silent. So there I am, vexatious, in defense of my, a newly created 87-year-old mother, who's a newly created widow. I mean, if there's one person who should be able to be defended, it's her, but the priorities of the legal system there is, to a certain extent, it exists for itself. You, speak, you know, you have a situation where people have made careers, judges have to run for re-election every six years. And once you've left private practice or you know, in employment, your next problem is, how do I get re-elected? And you do that, especially where judges are elected, by pandering, uh... To the local local interests, the large firms, the bar association, other judges, and the people, the quiet people we cannot see who run a, who run a who run a city, the people who choose people who are allowed to run. This thing is always you know, governments are run by really by people we cannot not see. We think that the legal system is an analog, not, not an analog. We think we think it's a, you know a. Um, uh, a system of non-discretionary uh, activities if a then b then c read the statutes okay this means this and here's the procedure but it's not there's also a lot of personal favors what makes it difficult is it's not bad all the time so you know, there's sometimes when it works quite well there are other times when it fails badly cleveland had deteriorated so much that the fbi was forced to raid it in 2007 2008 and into 2013, um, 160 people were indicted, judges, prosecutors, county executives, contractors, administrators went to jail. Uh, It was very serious. And the FBI raids actually were very expensive.
2: And they started their investigations uh, in the year 2000. So they put seven years of work in before they actually moved in and started arresting people. County Prosecutor Bill Mason had to resign a Chief Clerk of the Criminal Court
1: there they charged $150,000 for a new roof in the condominium but it didn't seem right so I called the contractor said, how much did that uh, roof cost he goes $75,000 I said do you know they charged us $150,000 he goes no I can show you the bills if you want
0: okay folks thanks for bearing with us we had a little bit of a technical issue and we have Robert back with us so hopefully we didn't miss too much but if he has to repeat a little bit um, you'll understand why Hi, Robert. You were talking about how the second case was a uh, situation with the homeowners association where they were billing the homeowners approximately twice as much as what the contractor actually charged for the job. And that was a tune of $75,000. So that's sort of the last I heard. Um, so I guess you can pick it up from there. Right. So as $150,000
1: for a roof that costs $75,000. I looked into the uh, the management company, turned out they had a terrible reputation, and they wouldn't give me any documentation. So I sued them. It's called a derivative suit, in which you file for the benefit of the corporation to preserve its financial integrity and well-being. You sort of file for everybody in the condominium. Right. It's not it's not it's not a suit to make money for me, although I did have a direct action in which I could try.
0: Portion of the money paid, Right, whatever your portion of is divided by you know the number of homeowners into seventy-seven, uh, seventy-five thousand, or whatever the the number would be. Right. So there are two ways of suing a uh, corporation under this circumstance: a direct action or derivative. I did derivative,
1: which and the local court jurisdiction for Chirin Falls is the Bedford Municipal Court, about which I didn't really know anything until later. It turns out Bedford Municipal Court has a real history of criminal uh, activity uh, among its you know, judges.
0: Is this Ohio also?
1: Prosecutors and law directors. This is Bedford,
0: Ohio. Okay. So obviously, this is so the, before uh, the you. My name was in Chickering Falls, Ohio. Excuse me. Go ahead. This was before the vexatious decision.
1: No, this was after. Oh, okay. The vexatious thing was playing out in two thousand five, two thousand six. Then, in two thousand seven, uh, I was you know conducting the suit against um, uh, the owners association.
0: How were you able to file the suit if had you if you had already been declared vexatious? Um, it happened. I filed it before I was declared vexatious. Okay, so it was pending. That is to say I filed it. In, in, in two thousand and early two thousand and six, before I was declared vexatious. Okay, just so we have the same I, was sort, of to, oh, oh, I was sort of go able to go under the rug. Gotcha. It did become an issue later. Right. In in the case, there was sending files back and forth. They decided to let me, you know, have the they did. decided to let me continue. But so I filed, and
1: I was in Bedford Municipal Court, and I had a a judge named Peter Duncan, who was later removed from office during corruption uh, scandals. Driven suits can, they're unusual for municipal court judges. They can be complex, it's a strange form. Uh, There's more briefs than they like. And so anyway, I filed and the judge asked me to come in for a motion hearing uh, from Vermont. So I drove in from Vermont. This is in uh, early 2007. We had the motion hearing, opposing counsel was a local counsel from a very prominent firm in Indian Falls, uh, very high powered, very connected and he just, he, it was odd. He didn't know the file. He didn't know the facts. He was flipping through the pages to learn about the file while uh, I was, you know, presenting my argument to the motion to dismiss. And he just didn't know the file. He could have making remarks about something he'd find in the file that he didn't like. And, but they weren't legal criteria. It was like he was making it up. He wasn't prepared. Right. So, he, meanwhile, he's falling all over local council, giving him anything he wants, and he dismissed the case. And I, well, I I, did, I, I have a, you know, 1,500-mile round trip. I expected more responsible analysis than this. So, I called the law director a guy named Burdick and, uh, said, you know, this is, this is very bad and I'm going to publish an editorial and said, not only send it to some of the local periodicals, but I'm going to pass it out on the courthouse steps in Bedford Municipal Court. Can you tell me what the security limitations are? I don't really don't want to obstruct, you know, traffic or on a busy day. I don't want to do it wrong. I'm Mm. not going to go in there and make, make make a scene people have to know both of the sort of, uh, irresponsible and cavalier behavior is being um, practiced by judges. So I wrote the editorial, passed it out on the, uh, the entrance to Bedford municipal court. This is in April of 2007 and drive back to Vermont. But, you know, okay. This is first amendment, free speech, not a big deal. I probably won't make any friends, but uh, hmm. that's, that's what the first amendment exists for is to hold public officials accountable. So six months later in October, 2007, I'm sitting in my place in Vermont, the state police show up. I know them because, uh, I helped them with a couple of things. And, um, I say, what's going on? They I say, well, there's a warrant for your arrest in Ohio, and you're being extradited. He said, not only it's a warrant, it's a felony warrant. I said, well, this is alarming. So meanwhile, they're handcuffing me and taking me off to jail to a holding cell. And because I know the guys, They know the police, I said, what do you have? You know, this is something really wrong here. So he showed me the affidavit for the warrant. And as soon as I saw the affidavit for the warrant, I could tell this is a stupendous lie. What they did is in retaliation for passing out the uh, the editorial and sending it to different periodicals in the area, Uh, the judge, Peter Junkin, went to the Cuyahoga County prosecutor and said, bring something, you know, find something on this guy. Or make something up. So what they did is they made up this set of facts and they presented it to the grand jury in June of 2007.
0: Yeah, I, I, so want a, I want to. I want to. I want to tell the audience what it is because it's really outrageous. Um, it's and you can correct me if I got anything wrong, but as we we spoke in pre-production and as I recall it. You had purchased a gun lawfully in another state west virginia i believe it was and uh-huh. in vermont and uh-huh. as part of the background check you filled it out and completely and thoroughly but there was one statute uh, that, that you had named which shouldn't have mattered anyway because it, it was not a disqualifying statute period but they wanted more information you simply added the subsection c or d or whatever it was this went to the fbi they're like fine you got you got your firearm achieved it lawfully somehow ohio saw this and said that not only was it fraudulent but somehow it was fraudulent on ohio even though ohio all right folks thanks for bearing with us we had some technical issues again so i was sort of summing up what the what the case in ohio was now which so basically This municipality in Ohio was attempting, well, not attempting, they filed charges for a non-criminal act that, even if it was criminal, would have been a crime in Vermont, not in Ohio, possibly a state charge, possibly even a federal charge, but whatever it was, not Ohio. And yet they did so anyway, and that picks us up where we left off.
2: Well, actually it was not a crime anywhere. What happened was, and
1: you, um, your, uh, your rendition of the events is true. What happened was I went to Vermont at a point of purchase, uh, security checks, when you buy a hand a handgun. Mm-hmm. and it's called the next check and ICS and what happens when you buy a gun, you go to the cash register and the gun owner uh, the shop owner will call the FBI, which has, you know, uh, yeah. a, a line, an open line in West Virginia. And they say, is there anything on this guy? There's certain, like, if you have a felony, you can't get a gun. Right. If you have
0: ever been committed to a mental illness you can't. A, There's a restraining order oh. against you for domestic abuse, that sort of thing. That was a red flag law. Right. And
1: um, so they said, sorry, Bob, you can't have the gun because... You know something came up on you. I said, "What is it?" And they said, "Well, in Ohio in two thousand and two, two thousand and one, you were uh, you were were fine on a, the lowest misdemeanor in Ohio it was a misdemeanor of the fourth degree for improper storage of a firearm." So I said, "Yeah, that, that was true. I you have to have your uh, firearm in a lockbox in your a trunk in a car in Ohio." My car was towed during a rush hour violation. The police unlocked it, went through everything and found my 22 caliber pistol, semi-automatic. So technically that was a violation of the law. I went to Ohio, was fine, went home, and that was at the end of it. So it was the lowest misdemeanor in a court which only hears misdemeanors, like the municipal court, which is a Cleveland suburb. I was thrown back at the time, this is I was involved doing investigation on my mom's case for the, to be a fine arts uh, auctioneer so uh, in 2007 so anyway in, in uh, when I went to buy a gun in Vermont I asked him to send me you know uh, what the problem was I, they I got asked for a correspondence from the, the federal uh, agency in West Virginia and they said Bob you see in 2000 uh, early 2001 2002 you were convicted for uh, improper f- storage of a firearm and we cannot tell if that's a misdemeanor or a felony because in Lakewood, uh, misdemeanors can have up to one year imprisonment and in some jurisdictions, one year imprisonment means felonies. So the FBI asked me to send a copy of the, or- of the original order. So I wrote to Lakewood municipal court, asking for the, you know, the charges, the, the police charges in the court order got a copy of it and the uh statute was Lakewood Municipal Code five forty nine oh four C which is a misdemeanor statute in all its subsections A B and C. But it was missing the C, <coughs> which is irrelevant because it's still a misdemeanor in the court that only hears misdemeanors. Right. So in green I added the subsection C, uh, wrote a letter to the FBI saying, well, I wrote on this copy of an order to add the subsection, but it doesn't matter anyway because you can see 549 is a misd- it's misdemeanor in all its subsections. And I also sent them the portion of the Ohio Constitution, which determines, uh, assigns Lakewood Municipal Court as a court which can only hear misdemeanors. With only misdemeanor jurisdiction, if a felony gets bound over to the court of common pleas, so the FBI said, "Oh, okay, no problem. Uh, we, see, you know, you know, writing on the order is not that great, but it's not a federal crime, it's not a state crime, it's not fraud. You didn't, you know, uh, change a felony into a misdemeanor. No problem. Go back and get your
0: gun. Right. So and, what, and whatever it was wasn't in Ohio.
1: Well, it doesn't matter. I mean." um because there are federal laws if you're if you present uh, if you utter
0: a falsified document to a federal agency that's a federal crime but was was this from a federal prosecutor or was it from the state prosecutor?
1: well what happened was when they when the fbi couldn't tell if you know my improper storage of a firearm was a felony or a misdemeanor? They asked me to get the original court documents from Lakewood, Ohio, where I was uh, where I was, uh, received the, the criminal charges. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you go to Lakewood Municipal Court and you ask for the police charging document, the, uh, the criminal complaint, which said, "Oh, our you know, Lakewood Municipal Code 54904." And then you look at the, the conviction, the, the court order, which says 54904. And then you know you show they're, they're all misdemeanors in the court which only hears misdemeanors. And you send that to the FBI because they just wanted to know if if I was uh, accused or found guilty of a felony in Ohio.
0: Yeah, but I'm just trying to figure out what authority in Ohio even filed for this the, these charges.
1: Well, what happened you mean the original uh, improper storage of a firearm charges? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I had to go back.
0: No, no, no. Uh, but was, who, who filed them? Like who in Ohio filed them?
1: The Lakewood Municipal Police.
0: Right. So they are not federal. They're they're municipal. So yeah, it's a federal statute. But this is, this is not something that the uh, you know. Baltimore City doesn't file federal crimes. The U.S. Attorney's office in Baltimore City files federal crimes. The, you know, I live in Baltimore County. You know, Baltimore County doesn't file federal crimes. The 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 federal government would do so. So, you know, I, what I'm pointing out is that they they filed something that was not even in their jurisdiction.
1: Well, it's really, I, I would say, you know, I think Jeff that if um. Let's say the FBI, sitting in the office in West Virginia, who's doing the Nixon investigation, they had to determine if I was, you know, a convicted of a felony or not. Because if I had a con- felony conviction, uh, I wouldn't have been able to get a gun. And if I present documents to them, even they're from an Ohio municipal court, that I changed, let's say I changed, you know, uh, a felony count into a misdemeanor, and presented it to the FBI. That is a federal crime. There would be federal jurisdiction for that, for uh, uttering a falsified document to a federal agency. There'd be federal jurisdiction for that, very serious.
0: Oh, okay. yeah. I'm not- You would know,
1: also have state liability, too.
0: Well, I, I'm not doubting that there'd be federal liability if there was a crime. Or even if they made a mistake, it's federal. But there there wouldn't be something in Lakeland County for it.
1: Oh, you know, Lakewood Actually, Lakewood, Ohio is in uh, Cuyahoga County where Cleveland is. Mm-hmm. But basically, I just wrote in a different colored ink with an you know, uh, on, on administrative order. I mean, it's, not, it's a court order, but I wrote on it in a different colored ink, sending a letter to the FBI saying they left out the subsection, but it doesn't matter because the subsection, all the subsections are misdemeanors. Right. And I drew, drew their attention to it and drew in a different color ink. And they said, okay, no problem. You know, you, you haven't fooled us. You haven't committed fraud, which is a material misrepresentation. Go get your gun. You, you haven't committed a crime anywhere. You in a proper store of a firearm. Be more careful next time. We don't care. So I got my gun. So after I read the editorial, skip forward five years later to 2007, after I read the editorial about Peter Duncan in Bedford Municipal Court, um, you know, I, um, being extradited to Ohio, uh, on felony charges. So I look at the documents. And I see the documents, which are the basis for the affidavit, maybe the arrest, arrest warrant comes with an affidavit. And they said in April of 2003, which is exactly the time, uh, I was applying for the gun. April, uh, that I falsified the court order in the possession of the court clerk in Ohio. So well, I wasn't in Ohio on those states. In addition, the statute on which they relied uh, involves two felony counts. One is alteration of a will to get more money for yourself, or two, altering the original of a court document in the possession of the court clerk. Like, let's say you're an attorney, right? You ask the clerk to look at a file. And you change a million dollar reward to twenty five
0: cents. Right, and and none You're of the falsifying yeah.
1: driver's license.
0: Right, no, none those of those in things. In Ohio
1: at the time, I, I was in New Hampshire and Vermont doing small construction projects.
0: Right, and so, and these were not court documents in possession of the clerk. I mean it it, no. it, it, it's, it 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 failed on almost every level you can think of. Yet you had to deal with it, and as I recall, you you made multiple, numerous trips back and forth from Vermont to Ohio to try to deal with this thing. Um, And they would never let you appear via telephone or have your appearance waived. And almost all of these were procedural or prosecutorial requests for postponements, which you never got any advance notice of the filings or the rulings. And that, I mean, you you spent inordinate amounts of time making this 1,500-mile trip back and forth, uh, something like what ten, twelve times?
1: Yes. Right. And the interesting part of this is, I went, as I got to know the file, I saw that in June of two thousand seven, uh, the Cuyahoga County prosecutor presented it to the grand jury, and I got a no bill. The grand jury refused to indict. No one gets a no bill. I mean, you could they say you you know. You didn't indict uh, a ham sandwich. I, the, the jury jury, refused to indict me. Now in Ohio, you cannot represent. There is a case called Ohio, uh, Freilich versus Ohio Board of Mental Health, which says to re-present this malicious prosecution. Plus I wasn't in Ohio and I'd never done anything wrong morally, ethically, or legally. And I wasn't in Ohio at the time on the affidavit. I wasn't even there on, you know, on or about April 28th, 2003. So they represented anyway. And, um, so as you've described, you know, you, uh, have to go in because you're being extradited. I made a deal to the prosecutor saying, you know, don't extradite me. It's, you know, it's a two week bus ride change to the chains of the floor of a vehicle because they, they take you all the way, you know, it's a very secure a lot of different States, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Tennessee, to pick up people along the way. And the bus keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So basically you're in an armored vehicle, changed the floor for two weeks. So I made a deal with the Vermont prosecutor who was responsible for getting me to Ohio. I said, I'll go immediately. Don't, uh, I'll just go immediately. Stay in touch with you all the time. So I drove into Ohio for my arraignment uh, the bail commissioner looks at this and said, you shouldn't be here. You haven't done anything wrong. I'm going to let you go, even though you're from Vermont, with no bail on your own personal recognizance. It's good. So you go in for your arraignment. Uh, you plead not guilty. This is in October of 2007. And then I made some motions. I said, one, can you please discuss this case? I got a no bill and it's illegal to represent. There's a brand new case in Ohio it came out in August 2007, the Fraley case, Who it said its malicious prosecution to represent. I got a no bill to an alibi defense. I wasn't in Ohio on, on or about April 28, 2003, which is the date on the, uh, affidavit for the warrant. I wasn't there. So you, you submit these motions, and the judge refused to rule on them. The judge was Michael Russo. And this is odd. Why wouldn't they rule on them according to the rules of Ohio? The rules of superintendents the court. They have to rule on motions within 120 days, mm-hmm. no rulings. So I said, well, this is really getting out of my control. They're not following the rules. No one cares. And I'm not making decisions. So they had me go in, and, uh, again, after the arraignment in October, second trip in October, 2007. And you drive in and you meet with them because you, you have to go to pretrial conferences. Right. If you don't go to pretrial conferences, they have to one. I said, can I appear by phone? They said, no, you got to be. So I drove in, go to this room,
2: and the prosecutor says, will you take a misdemeanor plea? I said, no, I haven't done anything. Not only that, I'm virtuous.
1: I'm right. You're wrong. I'll go to trial. Find with me. This is easy. So I said Okay. Thank you. Go home. So after a 1500 mile ride, we had a uh, 10 minute, uh, pre trial conference. They did this again in November. They did this again in December, same pre trial conference. You want to take a plea? No, they did it again in January. They did it again in February,
2: no, I, I you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing this. Right.
1: So by then I applied for a court appointed attorney and, uh, he was doing a terrible job. He did, I just wasn't important to him. I was doing all the paperwork and, um, he was missing appointments. I like had come in for pretrial and he wouldn't be there or he, one of them, one of the pretrial conferences, he actually forgot to tell me about it. So I missed it, and there was a bench warrant, so I had to come in for that. But the trial was scheduled for early March in 2008. So this is great. I'm going in. I called the local TV station there, WKYC, and said, This is going on. You guys, does this interest you? I know I'm sort of small potatoes, but this is quite bad. So I go in for trial in the morning. You know, I drove all night. During one of these trips from Vermont in the winter, I actually hit a deer. It was very icy, it was was horrible, very, very risky. damaged my car and hurt the poor deer. So I go in for trial and they're on time. I see these guys setting up cameras. I said, wow, this is good. So I'm sitting there, you know, I I have a trial set for nine o'clock and I'm sitting there and the judge never called the hearing. So I sat there for the whole morning. I said, Well, maybe, you know, if they said something they say at nine that's it's a cattle call. They put people ahead of you. There really weren't that many other people, other parties in the courtroom. So I you know, waited till lunch, then went back in the afternoon, sat there all afternoon, went back to the bailiff's office and said, Are you going to hear this case? I'm here from Vermont. And she shouted at me. She was very angry. I went to the prosecutor's office. And they were angry at me for who said I shouldn't be talking to them. And then they were closing down the justice center. They asked me to leave. So I drove in for a trial, which they wouldn't give me. And they said, go back to Vermont. This is like trip six or seven, no, no trial. And so I go back to Vermont and I noticed on the docket for all these pretrial conferences. The clerk of courts was always saying that, um, hearing the trial is postponed because the defendant, me asked for a continuance They do this, to spoil your right to a speedy trial in Ohio, you have to have a criminal hearing of 90 days, but I never made any motions for continuances and continuances in Ohio have to be signed by the defendant and there's no paper trail. I never. I always wanted a trial. And all, every time they had me come in for a pre-trial conference, on the docket it said, defendant has asked for a continuance. Well, I didn't. A pre-trial, trial, a pre-trial conference was not my idea. And I never asked for a continuance after them because I wanted to get this over. So they were falsifying the docket. And as it turns out, the docket Chief uh, Clerk of Criminal Courts, Mark Lyme, during the FBI rage was later put in prison on 37 counts of and falsification. It was just, they lost incredible, they lost their credibility and eventually, I asked the public defender to take my case and he agreed to uh, a man named Bob Tobik. And he said, oh, this is what they always do. He said, what they do is they have you come in for a lot of pre-trials and normally, you know, someone loses their job after five pre-trials and they force you to take a plea. He said, You know, you're, you're really doing quite well. You're really standing up there, Bob. Oh, thank you. So there was another pretrial conference in April. I refused to take a plea. They set another trial for June. I drove in during June. Same thing, they canceled the trial. I didn't know how I would take a plea. I said, No. And my mom died in July 2008, and I had to have abdominal surgery. So they called me in in September for another pre-trial conference. I refused to take a plea. And they set another, a third trial for October of 2008. It was about my 11th or 12th trip. And I I was ready to go to trial. And the judge had still not ruled on any of my motions. And even more seriously, I never got a pre-trial hearing, which is under criminal rule 8 in Ohio, after arraignment. You get a pretrial, uh, you, you, get, you get a you get a pretrial where the prosecutor presents his evidence, I present my evidence, and you decide do we really want to go forward with this? And I had was given a pretrial. I would have shown them I wasn't in Ohio, I got a no-bill. They can't represent, and I committed no crime. Writing on an administrative order without changing the content of the order is not a crime anywhere. It's not a crime it's not morally wrong, and it's not ethically wrong. And I had the alibi. So I, but they didn't give me my pre-trial hearing, which you get. They wouldn't rule on my motion to dismiss. So in October, this is going on for a year. I drive in and public defender, Bob Tobik, very decent guy. He says, listen, Bob, this is going to go on forever. And you know, we just don't have any confidence in anything that's going on here right now. They could find you guilty and put you in jail even though you haven't done anything. So here's what they're offering you. A $50 fine, no probation, and you agree to a lesser charge of altering a court document, some misdemeanor charge. I still don't, don't even know what it meant, so I can't remember the statute. They said, you know, they just we'd hate to see you in an orange suit, Bob. Uh, jail. So my own defense counselor, who's the public defender, Bob Dubick was the head of the public defender. He was the chief public defender in Cleveland. If he's saying this, I got really scared after all this. So I said, okay, I'll, I got to take this. I can't do this anymore. I mean, I can't make a living. You, you just, it's, so I, I took it. So that was the name of that tune. But also what they did, I was a member of the Washington state bar at the time. is a, They sent an anonymous letter to my state bar saying I had been indicted for a felony, which, uh, got me in enormous trouble with my state bar. Just the filth of this thing was, um, uh, overwhelming. I've never ex- expected this, uh, to be like this. You think the legal system is an algorithm. know if this then this you have this right this right is exercised you have the pretrial here if you have an alibi excuse the judge hears it rolls if you've got a no bill you're not allowed to represent the judge will dismiss the case but there was this huge silence they wouldn't act and it turns out that everybody in my case was eventually removed from office. peter junkin then municipal court was put out uh the prosecutor bill mason for cuyahoga county was responsible for my um, felony charges was forced to resign and the chief clerk of courts mark line was put in prison on scores of docket falsification charges and i'd like to say a bit about bedford municipal court because there are several new developments there is that okay
0: yeah yeah but let's underscore what you just said that basically Everybody who was lined up against you, who had made your life miserable, um, and never backed down, there's been enormous uh, repercussions to them legally from federal authorities, uh, which is a little bit ironic since they tried to use some federal, uh, you know, law and then somehow shoehorn it into ohio and use it against you um which caused you so much of the heartache um and you know the, the, yeah you could say that some level of justice has occurred but not for you i mean you're you're still walking around disbarred you're you're still uh, you know you still haven't gotten any of your cases advanced so um you know you're sort of like the forgotten one here yes and um had I
1: done anything- illegal by state law federal law or even disingenuous and i would be ashamed but I, i'm not I, I decided i'm dying on my feet and not on my knees and someone has to do what i'm doing but uh, it turns out I, my um against bedford municipal court were also uh confirmed it turns out the bedford municipal court had a prior uh, law director, a prosecutor named Tommy Longo. Tommy Longo was removed from office and actually arrested in Mexico on a federal warrant. Tommy Longo had been dealing drugs with the local mafia in the Little League Cleveland. Yeah. He'd been doing committing date rape, giving girls drugs, and then assaulting them sexually while they were unconscious. <laughs> Uh, he had weapons violations. He was actually on America's Most Wanted, believe it or not, that old TV show. And he was arrested in Mexico on a federal oh, international warrant. And he was a law director prosecutor. Then Peter Duncan was removed. Uh, then another judge, uh, Judge Jacobs was removed recently, uh, for activities supporting prostitution. The, the law director, a guy named Ken Schumann, was also removed from office for the same uh, activities for uh, promoting prostitution. Uh, so there you have two judges, two law directors, and a prosecutor at Bedford Municipal Court who were removed from office uh, on, on on criminal charges. And there's another person. Joe O'Malley, who would act as a prosecutor, sometimes, uh, pro temp in that jurisdiction and Joe was, uh, during the FBI raids, uh, Joe was put in federal prison for committing perjury to the FBI during its investigation. So we have a real cheery bunch of people running things and they were all involved in my case because Joe O'Malley also brought charges uh, against me. In uh, a local jurisdiction that they were later dismissed. But it's just, unless you're a criminal, it's difficult to participate in Cleveland's legal administration.
0: Absolutely. So, has anything changed for you, period?
1: Well, no, I mean, you know, you fight the fight, you make your choices. I mean, one of the things my fa- my father was a professor of public policy and law and he used to do executive development for post PhD executive development for private and public entities. And my father was uh quite stern and said, you know, you you have to stand alone with your view of life. It's hard, it's lonely. But it's honorable and it's clean. You have to fight your fight. Which is a good good way to be raised. Nothing wrong with it. And you know, if you try to uh, accommodate the group and conform to the group at the expense of really important principles that support us all, then you failed. That's why, you know, people go to war, they risk their lives for things they believe in. I wouldn't risk my life. But I said I'm not caving in, someone has to do what I'm doing. So I did it. Um, most recently I was uh, luck- lucky and um, 2016, 2017, the vexatious status was removed against me, the judge who was administering my case, my vexatious status. Inherited from the, the first judge, Lillian Green, a judge named Lance Mason and Lance Mason refused to you know, remove the vexatious status, but then Lance Mason got removed, Judge Lance Mason himself got removed after he murdered his wife. <laughs> okay. He's in federal prison for a very long time. And this is after he assaulted her once and broke, broke, broke the orbital bone, broke her, really broke her cheekbone, really hurt her. So when uh, Judge Mason was put in prison, I applied to the court just to, to, this has always been a mistake, can you remove this? And I said yes. So I was not fixed, and as of 2017, I was not fixations. All right, well that's good one victory. And no, but in, in 20, 2019, they reimposed filing restrictions. Oh, great. It was a judge, uh, another Judge Russo, a cousin to Michael Russo. Judge John Russo, administrative judge, reimposed them. I said, "Well, because they found out about the book I wrote concerning the FBI raids in Cleveland, exposing all this." I get this notice from Cleveland that filing restrictions have been imposed on me. And I said, "Well, how can you do this? I didn't have a case in Ohio. I wasn't conducting a case. There was no—I was not served with a complaint. There was no motion hearing." No, nothing. They just do this because I've
2: embarrassed them and someone asked them to do this. It's just, uh, our, we're a people in
1: decline. It just, if this can go, you know, if this can happen, I'm very worried about our country.
0: Uh, well, it's a horrendous story and the, and the story that Tony told, well, different in the details is a similar type of symptom and very very scary um so why don't you tell the folks a little bit about your book where they can find it and where they can find out more information um uh, because we're sort of getting to about the one hour mark which is usually where the show ends so it's probably a good time to um promote whatever you have to promote and let them know how they can support you and find out more information should they be interested. Sure. Thank you. The book is called Bad Minds, High Places,
1: America's Archipelago of Legal Failure. And it's on many, many websites, most prominent, easiest place to get it is on Amazon. Okay. Very easy to get it there. Sure. I'd like to say one more thing, if I can. Of course. Uh, I'm not the only person has been oppressed by this vexatious business is a very distinguished person um a woman who was a pharmacist and an attorney who was active in local politics in, in Sandusky and uh her name is Elsbeth Baumgartner and Elsbeth found that uh one one of the, the uh there was some Financial irresponsibility, some local payoffs between local energy companies, some, some illegal financial relations between local energy companies and politicians in Sandusky in, in that area. And she exposed it. Next thing you know, she's arrested, put in jail, declared a vexatious litigator, loses her bar license. And as Elizabeth put it, she said, You just suffer a long, slow, death. Right. So I'm not the only one. And there are people who are just as accomplished, as educated and well-meaning, who behave responsibly, who've been subject to organized activity by the people who are supposed to protect us.
0: Well, it's probably good to not be the one that's singled out, but I think on the grand s- scheme of things, it's probably worse news that th- this is you know, I don't know if it's enough to be a pattern, but it's been repeated and and it's a tactic um, and it's a very heavy handed tactic. And it puts the attorney or the, the plaintiff, the, the, the litigant on defense and not just, you know, on their back, back foot or their heels, but it puts them down in a hole under a hat, you know, like a hatch in the hole and the the hatch is locked. I mean, you're like in the sub-basement of a hole and and you're locked out. I mean, and you have to, it's like, it's like the the show Lost. You have to, you know, solve seven mystery boxes before you're even back in neutral. And then, and then you still have to fight the case. And I mean, it's exhausting. It's expensive. (laughs) It, luckily enough for you luckily is a, is a strange word to use but you you were you know a lawyer and you were you were able to to do the pleadings yourself but you know uh, most other people couldn't and can't um so really this was some shocking stuff thank you for sharing it with us, uh, and go fo- uh, folks, go check out his book and, uh, everything else he mentioned here and check out the show with Tony as well. I, I believe it's called the federal prosecution story that you won't believe that was the very clever title of the store of that show. Um, and it's, yeah within the last 12 weeks. So check that out. And Robert, I, I you know, sorry for everything that you went through, but, but, uh, thank you for sharing your story with garden views and with the world. and. Keep on keeping on.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's always good to be heard. Absolutely. Okay. The cards won't do it.
0: <laughs> so thank you again. You're very welcome. All right, folks. Thanks for listening to Garden Views, and hopefully you'll tune in again next week. And if you have a chance, give us a rating and a review, a referral. Let your friends and family know, um, because this show is sort of genre defined. Um, so appreciate that, and you'll hear from us next you time. Can. You're looking at the system and you can't beat me.